though we're approaching, we're at the final chapter of the book of Mark. So if you'll turn to chapter uh, 16, we're going to look at uh, 1 through 8. This is uh, what is called the, the short ending of Mark. We'll, um, we'll talk a little bit about that as we, uh, as we get started. Uh, but uh, first, I'd like to just thank everybody uh, who came out yesterday uh, and helped us move all of this stuff uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Raleigh. And um, one of the men there threatened to listen to me uh, speak today, so I would give a shout out to him as well. Uh, so I hope that, hope that he is listening today. So they are a great group of men there that just worked their tails off. It was an amazing thing. They really did. Put a lot of us young people to shame, you know. <laughs> you know, they're 65, 70 probably, and and they're up under the up under the porch grinding away, you know. It was a great thing to watch. So, and participating, a little sore. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray and we'll get started today. Looking at this, our Father, we're grateful for this uh, this time. We're grateful for your Word. We just pray your Spirit would be among us that you would help us. Uh, that you would uh, overcome our weaknesses, Father, that uh, you would be exalted in them. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would uh, speak today uh, through your word. I pray, Father, that uh, we, would, we would come away with a, a deeper understanding of, of the resurrection and what, what it means, uh, what it meant and what it means and how, uh, how it is the culmination of all that Jesus had uh, set out to accomplish in his ministry. And uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, this time, and we just pray you be with us now by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So uh, I don't normally put titles on sermons, but um, what I would like to uh, put out to you today is, is the notion of, of Sabbath, new creation, and resurrection. So this is what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be looking at the resurrection itself, uh, but we'll, what we will find is that um, we will find that even though the story is, is actually quite short on details, what we do find there, the details that we do have, help us to understand what Mark intends for us to understand about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the single most important event in history. For without the resurrection of Jesus, his death was in vain, and you and I are still in our sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, his death was in vain, and you and I are in our sins. This is because he is not Lord if he was not raised. He is not the Son of Man if he was not raised. He is not the anointed king who rules the world now if he was not raised. You will not obtain the resurrection if he was not raised. You have not received the spirit if he is not, ra if he is not raised, and much more. All history pivots on this event, coupled with his life-giving death. For the Jews of the first century, they understood that the resurrection was going to occur, but they did not expect that it would happen in the middle of history. 
they understood that at the end of their lives, after they had died and been gathered to their fathers, at some point in the future, God would return and judge the world, that he would raise from the dead those who were just and those who were wicked, and he would judge them. This is what they understood about the resurrection. Jesus himself then shows up in the middle of history and says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. By doing so, he is signaling that the resurrection itself can be participated in in the current age, before God returns and raises all the dead. All of history pivots on this event, coupled with the life-giving death of Jesus. And here in Mark, it is recounted in just a few verses. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, uh, the mother, Mary the mother of James, and Salome uh, brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from, uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone they were afraid. Let's summarize what happens in this short passage. The three women who watched the crucifixion, at least two of whom saw where Jesus was buried, buy spices as soon as the Sabbath was over. In other words, Saturday evening at sundown. And on the first day of the week, a detail mentioned two times in just a few verses, mentioned here and then also mentioned in verse 9 in the, the later ending. Sunday, the first day of the week, after sunrise, they go to the tomb to put spices on Jesus' body to both honor him and to minimize the smell of a body that had been dead for three days. They go, perhaps hoping that there will be help there to roll away the stone from the door. Mark tells us so, that it was a very large stone. But when they arrived, they found that it had already been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, there was a young man dressed in white, seated in the tomb. Mark tells us they were alarmed. He tells them what they are looking for or who they are looking for, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he commands them, go and tell the disciples, including Peter, especially Peter perhaps, that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee where he will appear to you just as he told you. They're frightened. They flee from the tomb in trembling and panic, and they say nothing to anyone because they are afraid. This is where the shorter ending of Mark leaves us. And some, 
thinking about how perhaps sophisticated Mark might have been for leaving us hanging, read the book as though it ends here. I don't think this is the end of the book uh, because too many things are left undone. But here are our options. You will see in your Bibles that verses 9 and following are noted as not present, and I'm reading, this is from the margin of the New King James, not present in two early manuscripts. It adds, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So from 9 till the end, which quite a few verses, they are there in all but two manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, these manuscripts are very important manuscripts. They date from about the 4th century uh, A.D., and they're some of the earliest manuscripts. They are the earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, but we should not let that um, make us think that just because they're early, necessarily they are best. But the options here are we take the shorter ending, and we end here with an incomplete gospel. The ending of Mark possibly lost due to the being, being at the end of a scroll, has been lost. And that's what we have, okay? This is, this is the theory of some. There are two endings, one that is just a verse long that comes after verse 8, and it's what they call the Western tradition. It's one verse. It has no verse numbers, and that one is almost never quoted. These, the majority text, reads in this way, and there are about 5,000 manuscripts that read it starting in verse 9, going to the end of, of our current, our current uh, mark that we have in our Bible. Now, I don't want to focus on that this week, but uh, if you look over in your margin and you see, you see this note about it, just know what, what they're talking about. They're talking about two manuscripts that have a shorter ending of Mark. They don't have verses 9 and following, which is pretty lengthy. The ending... Um, uh, Ryan will preach next week, contains an ending that resembles those of Matthew and Luke. He repeats that uh, Jesus arose on the first day of the week. His appearance to Mary Magdalene is mentioned first. She tells others who don't believe. The 11 disciples don't believe when told, continuing the theme of hardness of heart that we find in Mark. They are chided for their unbelief and are commissioned to go into all the world. Jesus then ascends to the right hand of God. Very much what we would expect based on the previous chapters, where Jesus has been predicting his death and his resurrection, his enthronement as king and his exaltation. If we leave it here, we do have a version of the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand but it seems to me to be rather incomplete. His vindication after suffering, and this I think is, is key in understanding that we do have to include the longer ending of Mark. Like the Son of Man character in Daniel 7, who Jesus has been talking about through the whole gospel, he's been calling himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man. I, the Son of Man, am going to suffer. We're going to look at that in just a bit. If we have just the short ending of Mark, we don't have the conclusion to any of that. Today I want to look specifically at verses 1 through 8, uh, but next week, next week Ryan is going to pick up there and talk about uh, the rest of the chapter. Uh, what I'm going to do today, what I'd like to do today, 
is I want to zoom out and I want to look at the framing of the resurrection within not just the text of, of Mark. I want to come back to there. I am going to come back and look at, at the, uh, the, the understanding of Mark in relation to the resurrection and within, uh, within the, the book as a whole. But I want to step back and look at the framing of the resurrection uh, and of the book of Mark within the text, the greater text of the Old Testament. How does this, um, how does the, the context of the rest of the Old Testament contribute to our understanding of the resurrection? So first, a word about Peter. In this, in this particular text, Peter is specifically mentioned. The young man, likely an angel, though Mark doesn't tell us that, he just says a young man, tells Mary Magdalene, Ma Mary the mother of James and Salome, to go, uh, go tell the disciples, especially Peter, that Jesus is on his way to Galilee. Why Peter? What's going on? We might think, if we haven't read uh, the previous context, that Peter is special. We do find out a bit later that he has been, uh, been given the, as an apostle to the Jews, we do understand that to be the case, that he has been singled out as the apostle to the Jews. But that's not what, doesn't seem to me what's, be, what's going on here. That seems to be an overreading. Think of what Peter has just done a few days before. He had just denied that he even knew Jesus. And Mary is then to encourage Peter with the news of resurrection. He is still considered among the disciples and is not beyond redemption. Now, let's step back and look at the beginning of this page, uh, of this passage. Notice how Mark has framed the resurrection. These details are not insignificant, and they actually get at the heart what we are to take from this account. Specifically, what is the reference here to the Sabbath and the first day of the week? We can see here in verses one, verse, verse one and two, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Verse two, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Why the first day of the week? We see this also in the other gospels. They, all three of them, all three of the synoptics and, and John as well, emphasize the fact that this is the first day of the week. We in the Gentile world are often in the dark about the, significant, uh, the significance of the meaning of the Sabbath. Here's my proposal. The emphasis here on the Sabbath and the first day of the week are to take us back to the theme of creation. Think with me through Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And at the end of creation, God himself rests on the seventh day, and he sets it apart as holy. He completed his work of creation, and he rested. Who comes next in the story? What happens after 1 uh, verse 3, uh, 2 verse 3, chapter 2 verse 3 in Genesis? Adam comes next. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. This is the day of creation. What's going to happen in the next day? When no bush was in the field, 
uh, and no small plant of the field had sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, we might get caught up in the details here, but track with me largely, uh, speaking, uh, track with me through the larger structure of what's happening here. In this passage, right after the, the day of creation, God fashions Adam, which is later talked about as a day in chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 5. God fashions Adam, not creating him, but fashioning him, taking him and putting him in the garden and giving him a mission. There's much more here, but here's the point. After the original Sabbath, humanity comes forth from Adam. After the original Sabbath, humanity comes forth from Adam. His very name actually means mankind. He is taken and put into the land and then into the garden and given a mission. In our gospel too, note that Jesus also comes forth after the Sabbath. This is no coincidence. This is a, a humanity in the Messiah comes forth from the tomb as son of God, the representative of the people of God. This is why he explicitly says on the first day of the week, and as we'll see next week, the longer ending comes back and says it again, on the first day of the week. This is meant to signal that something new is happening in Jesus' resurrection. In other words, there is a new creation. This is where the Apostle Paul gets the notion of new creation. It is through this sequence of events you have death on the third day, death three days before, Sabbath, where the body of Jesus rests, coming forth on the first day of the week. This is the resurrection. This is where Paul gets the notion of new creation. And this is in, within our text as well. This is what they intend for us to get from it as well. This is to signal that the new creation has begun. Who does it begin with? With a new Adam with a new Adam. Christ Jesus as the first fruits, and this is why he's called the first fruits, of the new humanity. You may perhaps think this is going a bit too far, but when we look through John, you will see that this is developed at length. The Sabbath doesn't simply signal that God cares about humanity and will thus give them a day of rest. It does that. Jesus indicates as much when he mentions the Sabbath. But it signals that there is a new creation awaiting us and brought about by the resurrection of Jesus. And the Sabbath is a sign that it will come. The message was to the Jews, rest now weekly in anticipation of a new Sabbath. There is a new Sabbath coming, and it can be found in the Messiah. It signals that the new day that is dawning will follow God's work of new creation. I should also note that this is, in fact, why we worship on Sundays. It's not simply that God has given us another Sabbath that's different from the Jewish Sabbath in which we can work, uh, we, can, we can rest and we work uh, the first six days and then rest. 
No, it's not that at all. It is because Jesus himself was raised on the first day of the week, which is a signal to the rest of the world that there is a new creation, and it is, it is working its way through the world now. Where does it begin? It begins with us. It began with Jesus. It begins with us. The new creation is to uh, overcome the world. The resurrection on the first day of the week is meant to signal that the new day has dawned. The new humanity in the Messiah will be given a vocation to do. Go into all the world. This is what happens with Adam. But this time, being newly created in Christ Jesus with the life of the Spirit indwelling us, we are to go and tell about Jesus. That is, that is our mission. There's a bit of mystery here, but it seems to me that this is what is also happening in Genesis 2. The man <laughs> called humanity, as I mentioned, his name actually means man, mankind. He is the representative of all humanity. He is caused to rest in the garden. Now, after he is caused to rest in the garden, he is given a calling. A task. What is, he, what is he put in the garden to do? To work and to keep, it says. These terms, these terms are actually priestly terms. If you look in the book of Numbers, there are multiple times when this, these two terms are mentioned in relation to the priestly vocation, how they are to work within the temple. Adam is taken from out of the world, put into the garden, and given a priestly task. What is the priestly task? What is it that he's doing? He is, he is mediating the presence of God to the wider world. This is what he is called to do. After he is called to, the, to rest, he's given a calling to work and to keep, to do priestly work, signifying the nature of his work. After this, Note that he is given a helper suitable for him, the bride that God builds from his side. Why does he need a helper? Because he has a task. What is he to do? He is to serve as priest to the wider world. The bride that he's given is to help him in this endeavor. This is why at the end of that, it's a strange and cryptic uh, saying at the end of chapter 2. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. What is the reason? For this reason, what do you, look at it. It's like, what is he saying here? For this reason relates to the task that he's been given to do. Why would he need a helper if there's not something to do, right? This is what he's given. He's given a task, and it's a very short and cryptic uh, section, but, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's been given this task of mediating the presence of God. Now, what does he do after this? You, he almost immediately falls, right? They immediately fa fall. They're thrust from the garden, but that doesn't negate. In fact, it actually strengthens the cause that they're... Uh, to say that there might be a new creation coming forth in the future. A new creation in which a new Adam will be born, right? A new Adam who is going to have a priestly vocation, which is exactly what Jesus does. He has basically taken the vocation of Adam, 
and accomplished it as the obedient son. And this is done. This is culminating in and it's finished in the resurrection of our Lord. This is what I'm saying. This is all in the background of our current text in Mark. Is he explicitly evoking it? I think he's at least alluding to it because, because of this emphasis on Sabbath, first day of the week, which he mentions two times. There's a reason for that. When Mark talks about the Sabbath ending, Jesus rising on the first day of the week, he is telling us, and especially those who knew what the Sabbath meant and how it was meant to signal the future, that new creation had been launched, that it had been the work of, of Jesus in, in bringing it about had been completed, and that the first day of the week had arrived wherein Jesus, the new Adam, would be the first of the new humanity. He says this. He sa Paul says this later on. He says that he's the firstborn over all creation, right? So he's the firstborn among many brethren. What does he mean, right? He, this is a new creation, and he is the firstborn, out of which will come the new humanity, the church. Those who believe in him become new creations, born by believing in him. Think about John's gospel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, it, normally I like to stay within Mark uh, and talk about the way he develops it. But uh, just so you think I'm, don't think I'm out of my mind talking about this, uh, uh, it's important to look at John's gospel. It begins by rephrasing Genesis 1.1, in arche ein halagas, in the beginning was the word, right? These very words are meant to signal what the book of John is about. It is about a new creation. There is an old creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there is a new creation. And when does it happen? It happens on the first day of the week. Right? That's when it is born. The, lo <coughs> the Logos becomes flesh. And the Logos constantly says things like, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Listen to these terms, his work. What, look at this throughout John. To accomplish his work. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God has set his seal. John 6, 27. What is, what is humanity commanded to do in Genesis 2? Eat the fruit that God gives. Eat the food that God gives. This is meant to echo these texts. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We are to eat from that fruit. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, he says. Night is coming when no man can work. In other words, when he's in the tomb, resting on his Sabbath before the new creation, no man can work. It's a day of darkness. Again, a way of signaling that he is building a new creation. The darkness representing that time between his death and resurrection, when darkness seems to prevail. I glorified you on earth, he says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, John, John 17, 4. What is the work that he's been given to do? Once again, if we back up and look at this whole new creation scheme, 
we can see that he's echoing the work that God has completed in Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3. He is doing it again. It's a new creation in Christ Jesus. Then at the end, before the crucifixion, Jesus indicates that he has accomplished the work. This is the work of new creation. Now he will complete it just as God completed his work of creation. John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What is finished? What is finished? Alluding to Genesis 2, verse 3, using a, a form of the same verb in the Septuagint, he says that his death, like God's work of first creation, is the, the finishing and the building of a brand new creation. Then, John 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Same thing is going on here. Mark has it in a, in a very small package. John is developing it over his whole gospel. The first day of the week. And then in verse 19, 20 verse 19, on the evening of that day, John says, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now this is what I'm saying. In Mark, as we have come to expect in Mark, we are given brief descriptions of events with little explanation about what they mean. Because he expects for us to, to mine the scriptures for clues as to what he means, often, often giving us subtle allusions to texts like he does here with Sabbath and first day of the week. And while it is in this way, uh, it is this way too in John, we are given much more information in John about what he is getting at. In Mark, though, the framing of the resurrection scene as Sabbath and first day indicates that Jesus' resurrection is the dawning of the new day, the new day of God's new creation. And Jesus is the first fruits of the new humanity. And we are to be created in him. We are to put on, Paul says, the new man, Ephesians 4.24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to put on the new Adam. That's what he's saying. Put him on. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? After they sin, what do they do? What do they make for themselves for coverings? A leaf, right? They make, they make coverings for themselves. Paul says, don't put that one on. Don't put that clothing on. Put on the new Adam, the new man. Put on Christ Jesus, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this, I think, is the broader context of Mark's gospel. It's anchoring in the scriptural story of the world of Israel and her Sabbaths that point to a final Sabbath before the inauguration of the new day of resurrection. This is his mission, or part of it. We now turn to the question of identity and how this is shown within Mark's gospel. Within the context of Mark, what introduction have we seen within the book to which the resurrection might be the conclusion? What introduction have we seen in Mark 
to which the resurrection might be the conclusion. Remember the Son of Man figure, the name by which Jesus calls himself in the gospel most often. It is perhaps the most misunderstood name of Jesus, but nonetheless, he uses it, the Son of Man. Though it is not used in Mark 16, 1 through 8, we would be negligent to not come back to this theme as we arrive at the end of this book. That's what he's been talking about the whole time. The Son of Man will do this. The Son of Man will do that. Since it is, it is a central part of the self-identity of Jesus, and he specifically links the name with his death and resurrection, we must investigate what it means as we come to the end of this book. Jesus, as we have seen, envisioned himself to be carrying out the role of that figure, the Son of Man. As I mentioned in the sermon on Mark 10, 32 and 34, through 34, the central passages about the Son of Man involve suffering and vindication, death and resurrection, suffering and vindication. The Son of Man is said to have authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, this is early on. It's, it's true, too. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This, too, also uh, possibly relates to the Sabbath first day theme that we see here. But the primary things associated with the Son of Man are as follows. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and rise from the dead. 8.31. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 8.38. The Son of Man must rise from the dead, he says. The Son of Man, this is 9.9. The Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. 9.12. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will arise. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and condemned to death and delivered over to the Gentiles, be, uh, be, be flogged, spit upon, and killed, and after three days arise. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many blending the theme of Isaiah 53 with the Son of Man themes. The Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory and send forth his messengers to gather his people from the ends of the earth. As we approach closer to our context today, in, in early, just, just a couple of chapters before this, the Son of Man goes as it is written, he says, and this happens through the betrayal of Judas. The Son of Man goes just as it is written. 1441, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, that is, the Gentiles. 1441, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 1462, again, his vindication. These are all the references to the Son of Man in the Gospel of Mark. What almost every single one of them have in common is a description of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. In other words, the sufferer is raised from the dead and shown to be in the right. He is shown to have authority, given authority by virtue of his obedient suffering, authority to forgive sins, authority by virtue of his exalted position at the right hand of power, which we'll see later in, at the, in, um, in the longer ending. Now, in the past, the Son of Man title has been approached from the, the dual nature perspective. Uh, Jesus is called Son of Man because he's man, right? He's called Son of God because he's God. But this is not what's going on, I don't think. 
It is not simply that these titles reflect his humanity and his deity. And, and note this. Go back and look at every reference to the Son of Man. The names are reflections of not of his essence, but of his calling and task, his calling, his vocation. The Son of Man relates to what he's going to do. It is always joined to a role or a mission that is given to him, not simply that he's a man. Of course he's a man. Of course he's divine. But that's not the point. Look at them all, and you'll see that it is true. These names are functional and not ontological. This doesn't mean that he isn't human or divine, but that when he uses these terms in Mark, he is describing that he is acting symbolically as the principal figure that we see in Daniel 7. It's, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not real. It's a powerful symbol that what he is accomplishing is reflecting this, this person of the Son of Man. It simply means that his speech and his actions are pointers to the mission that he is going to accomplish. And for him to fully accomplish the mission as son of man, his vicarious life and death as God's servant must be vindicated through resurrection. Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then the next part. You have suffering vindication. He will see his seed. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Why are these two themes merged? Because these are the themes of Son of Man. Son of Man must suffer and be vindicated. You cannot have one without the other. And Jesus on his way to the cross knew this. He knew that the Son of Man must, uh, must not only be killed, but that he must be raised from the dead. Death and resurrection, in that order, made a sin offering, and then he sees his offspring and prolongs days. Within Mark, these two figures, the servant of Isaiah and the Son of Man in Daniel, have been joined together. And when we read it as a larger book, we see that the vision of Jesus as he marches toward his death and vindication are pointing in this direction. There are signs that point. And in, in this passage, Mark mentions two subtle signs, Sabbath, first day of the week, as to what he is going to accomplish as the Son of Man. The Sabbath coming to an end and the new day dawning, the first day of the week. These signs, which take us back to creation, Sabbath, Humanity, along with the narrower context of Mark itself, tell us that Jesus, as the embodiment of the Son of Man and the servant of Isaiah, has given his life a ransom for many. And now, not only has he done that, but the new day of new creation has begun to unfold. And fittingly, a woman in all of the Gospels, representing the bride of the new Adam, is given the first task of telling the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. Hear me here. May God give us the vision to see that indeed a new day has dawned and we are to live in it as new creations. This is the message of the good news 
that you can or have been made brand new. The message of the Gospels is that by Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection, all who will may participate in the new day of God's new humanity. This is the inclusivity of the gospel. <coughs> come and drink, Isaiah says. Come to the fountains. Drink freely. If you haven't, will you today? This is also, though, the exclusivity of the gospel, in that those who do not come to Jesus remain solidly within the old creation. This new day dawns only for those who are in Christ Jesus. In those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and who have believed in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. I invite you all to consider that not simply, that, that the resurrection is not simply something that happened that showed that, that Jesus was God, that he was, that he was somehow distinct from humanity but that what he intended to accomplish was to bring about the making of this whole world brand new. And the way that he does it is through you and I, the new creations created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. Paul in Romans 8 envisions, he envisions a time coming about through the sufferings of God's people when this old creation will stop its groaning and prevailing. And it will rejoice in the glorious resurrection of the sons of God. That is what we see in the Gospels. It is not laid out for us all neat and tidy. It is told to us in story form. But that is what they expect us to see laying behind it. The mountain of scriptural truth, the mountain of the story of creation, of fall, and of redemption all bundled up in the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus himself, in bearing our sins, also dealt with that death. He dealt with that death in order that he might bring about resurrection, the new creation, the return of Israel from exile, the return of the Gentiles from their darkness. And this is what they ask us to consider. Amen. Thank you, brother.